ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Good morning. Welcome to AM. It's Tuesday, the 14th of November. I'm Sabra Lane, coming to you from Nipaluna, Hobart. Renters across Australia are being hit by the lowest rental affordability in years. Renters in every capital city are worse off now than before the pandemic, and those living in regional areas are faring little better. Nick Grimm reports. For single mum Emily Lightfoot, the task of keeping a roof over her head and that of her teenage son just keeps getting harder. Right now, it's just an absolute crisis point. And almost at breaking point too, after the latest hike in the rent on her home at Albury in regional New South Wales. My rent just went up by $90 a week. You know, it's completely unsustainable at that level. She's not alone. This year's Rental Affordability Index, the annual measure of how easy Australians are finding it to pay their rent, shows that for most, the situation is the worst it's been since data started being collected a decade ago. Sydney has recorded the biggest drop in rental affordability in the past year, with the average rental there of $650 per week, costing almost 30% of the average rental household's income. Whenever households are paying 30% of their income or more on rent, they're in a situation of housing stress. And that means they don't have enough money to pay for other primary needs, such as uh, food, uh, heating, transport, education, uh, medicine and things like that. Ellen Witter from SGS Economics and Planning helped produce the index in collaboration with National Shelter, a non-government organisation that lobbies for access to housing for those on low incomes. While Sydney might be out in front in the unaffordability stakes, other cities aren't far behind. Perth recorded the nation's most significant decline in affordability since the pandemic. Meanwhile, outside the major cities, regional Queensland is now the least affordable area to live. Emma Greenholch is the CEO of National Shelter. What we've learnt this year from the Rental Affordability Index is how much the affordability of the private rental market has deteriorated. And I think particularly what we're seeing is considerable deterioration from 2020 to, to 2023. The states and territories are taking steps to assist renters with some reviewing short-term holiday rentals, while last week Western Australia launched a rental relief program providing one-off payments of up to $5,000 for struggling households. The ACT, meanwhile, has linked rent increases to the Consumer Price Index. Emma Greenholch again. And that provides, you know, certainty not just for the property owners, but particularly for the tenant, so they know what a rent increase could look like when they're renewing their lease. In a statement, Federal Housing Minister Julie Collins says the Albanese government's focus remains on improving housing supply with measures like the $10 billion Housing Australia Future Fund. Nick Grimm reporting there. Just when British politics seemed to have settled a little, the former Prime Minister David Cameron has made a return to one of the most senior cabinet positions in the UK government. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak's appointed him Foreign Secretary. Mr Sunak's also been promising a fresh approach to politics. Europe correspondent Nick Dole reports from London. Cabinet reshuffles usually make for pretty boring television. But when the new appointees to Rishi Sunak's cabinet turned up at Downing Street, the country's news channels were in a state of disbelief. That's the security detail just opening the door for... David, David Cameron. Cameron! 
I was not expecting okay. that. Okay. David Cameron, who resigned as Prime Minister back in 2016, is returning as Foreign Secretary. He's been given a peerage, so he's going to the House of Lords. And he says he'll work closely with Rishi Sunak in Cabinet. Well, I know it's not usual for a Prime Minister to come back in this way, but I believe in public service. The Prime Minister asked me to do this job. The two haven't always seen eye to eye, the biggest difference being Brexit. Rishi Sunak says he's a proud Brexiteer. But despite David Cameron triggering the Brexit referendum, he'd always warned that Britons would regret it if they ever turned their backs on Europe. And he recently suggested the Prime Minister lacked vision by cancelling nation-building projects. Look, of course I've disagreed with some individual decisions, but politics is a team enterprise. I've decided to join this team because I believe Rishi Sunak is a good Prime Minister. After resigning as Prime Minister after the Brexit vote, David Cameron found work as a political lobbyist for Australian financier Lex Greensill, a role which landed him in hot water. A parliamentary committee found he displayed a significant lack of judgment in sending dozens of texts to senior ministers lobbying for the UK government to give financial support to Greensill Capital, which later collapsed. Jill Rutter, a senior fellow at the Institute for Government, says David Cameron will bring significant weight to the role, but she says it's not an entirely trouble-free appointment. David Cameron brings a lot of baggage with him within the Conservative Party, People who hate Brexit won't forgive him for having offered the referendum and lost it. People who like Brexit won't forgive him for campaigning for Remain. The Cabinet reshuffle was triggered by the sacking of the Home Secretary, Suella Braverman, who was accused of undermining police by suggesting they sided with pro-Palestinian protesters. She also recently suggested people sleeping on the streets were making a lifestyle choice to do so. And she's become increasingly popular with the party's right wing, thanks to her hardline views on immigration and her attempted takedowns of left-wingers in Parliament. It's the Guardian reading. To tofu eating. She'll lose her power and her platform, but in sacking her, Rishi Sunak has also given her more freedom to attack him from the backbench. This is Nick Dole in London reporting for AM. To the Middle East now, and concerns are growing about the situation at two of Gaza's main hospitals as fierce fighting between Israel and Hamas continues nearby. The World Health Organisation is describing the situation inside one of the facilities as dire. And doctors are warning that more than 30 premature babies could die without fuel to power incubators. Our Middle East correspondent Alison Horn is in Jerusalem and we spoke earlier. The Hamas-run Ministry of Health says Israeli tanks are now stationed out the front of the Al-Shifa hospital, which is Gaza's busiest hospital. Doctors inside there say the hospital is under complete siege, as they put it. They say that 650 patients and staff are stuck inside while fighting rages around them outside. One other hospital that is surrounded by fighting is also the nearby Al-Quds Hospital. It's already stopped functioning, but the Palestinian Red Crescent says the hospital is surrounded by heavy gunfire. They say today they sent a convoy to help evacuate patients stuck in there and staff, and that they've been unable to reach that hospital. Now, 
Israel says Hamas uses the ground under these hospital facilities as command centres, which Hamas has denied. Israel also says that Hamas fired an RPG from the area of the Al-Quds hospital at an Israeli tank today. That statement has been condemned and denied by the Red Crescent, who have staff inside the Al-Quds hospital. Now an RPG, rocket-propelled grenade, and Alison, the United Nations Refugee Agency, also says it's run out of fuel. Yeah, and this is the agency that has been largely responsible for getting fuel stocks to hospitals. They have a fuel reservoir near the Gaza border, and that's really what has been keeping a lot of these health facilities going. UNRWA says now that fuel reservoir has run out, so they will no longer be able to supply hospitals or even to fuel their trucks that have been delivering aid throughout Gaza. So it really goes to the critical situation of the healthcare situation in Gaza as it deteriorates. Inside Al Shifa, doctors say there are 36 premature babies that have had to be removed from incubators because they no longer have fuel for generators and they fear these babies will die. They say three have already died. Israel says it will help to evacuate those babies, but that hasn't happened yet. Um, in a pretty sobering statement, though, from the World Health Organization, they say that Al Shifa, which is the biggest hospital in Gaza, has now ceased to function. In their words, they say the situation inside is dire and perilous. That's our Middle East correspondent, Alison Horn, reporting there from Jerusalem. Authorities in the United States are dealing with a surge in anti-Semitism and Islamophobia following the eruption of the conflict between Israel and Hamas. College campuses have become a flashpoint for divisions, with many students raising concerns about their own safety. North America correspondent Jade McMillan reports. At George Washington University, not far from the White House, tensions are running high. A student accused of taking down posters of Israeli hostages from inside a Jewish student centre has been suspended and pro-Palestinian messages projected onto a school library are being reviewed. Amid a nationwide spike in reported anti-Semitism, Jewish student Sabrina Soffa says many of her classmates feel unsafe. My mom has actually, she told me last week not to leave the house with my Star of David. So I have one that actually, it's a star closed now, but it opens up. So if I go in a public place and I don't feel safe or I don't know where I am, I always have the ability to, you know, take the precaution for myself. University administrators have also banned a person from entering the school grounds for a year for verbally abusing a Muslim student. In neighbouring Maryland, 19-year-old Dua says she's been harassed too. My friend and I were walking down the street and there was a car that stopped, rolled down the window, pointed at us and then showed us the middle finger for just the reason that we were wearing hijabs. The Council on American-Islamic Relations says it recorded a 216% increase in complaints of anti-Muslim and anti-Arab bias in the four weeks after the Israel-Gaza war broke out, while the Jewish organisation, the Anti-Defamation League, says there's been a 388% increase in anti-Semitic instances between October 7th and 23rd compared to the same period the year before. 
In some cases, the divisions have resulted in violence. The community of Plainfield, Illinois, is mourning the death of six-year-old Wadia Al-Fayoumi, a Palestinian-American boy whose murder is being treated as a hate crime. And in New York State, a 21-year-old has faced court, accused of threatening to kill Jewish students at Cornell University. The Biden administration has released a national anti-Semitism strategy and it's working on a plan to counter Islamophobia. It's also urged colleges to work harder to address concerns on campuses, like the ones where Sabrina and Dua are studying. Nowhere, and quite frankly, should be a place for hate. But ultimately what we're seeing in the trend is that it's unparalleled what Jewish students are facing. My dad, we used to work in an office around the time of 9-11, and he had somebody throw a brick through the window of his office. And he was telling me that he feels that this period of Islamophobia is as bad as or worse than what they faced post 9-11. A new generation facing old fears. This is Jade McMillan in Washington reporting for AM. Port operator DP World is back in business after a cyber attack which has left more than 30,000 shipping containers stranded at four ports around the country. The company's Australian manager, managing director, Nicolai News, says it's not clear whether any private data has been taken. He says there's been no ransom demand so far. He's speaking here with our senior business correspondent, Peter Ryan. Well, Nikolai News, uh, do you have any idea of how this cyber attack actually occurred? No, and, and I think the how and the who, that, that is something that we are now turning our attention to, but but that has not been a priority. The, the team has this whole weekend been, been flat out just saying, how do we restore services? Have you heard from the hackers? We have not, no. So have you had any ransom demand at all? No, we, have, we haven't heard from, from anyone. You could speculate that our sort of defence mechanisms kicked in, whether it was that early where their ability to permanently shut us down didn't really get to that point, which I guess also have meant any leverage in terms of a ransom demand was not there. If there had been a, a ransom demand or if one does come in, would DP World pay it? No. Under no circumstances? I cannot see any circumstances where we could justify it. Should the payment of ransom demands be made illegal? I don't think it's for me to to set that kind of policy. And, and, and also, I think it's probably too complex an issue to be have an absolute binary position on. But yes, I, I'm firmly behind the notion that you shouldn't pay, that, that it, it drives the wrong behaviour and it only encourages more, more cases in the future. In the case last year of Optus and also Medibank Private, they heard from the hackers and they knew that private data had been taken, was in their possession. The threat was to put it on on the dark web. But you haven't had any of that sort of threat yet? No, we have not. This case isn't over, though. Investigations have to continue. The federal government uh, and also your clients will be wanting to have some assurance and confidence that this won't happen again. Exactly. And, and, and we are 100% committed to that. And there has to be learnings around this about how we push back on on, on this criminality. With 30,000 containers stranded, they're now moving again, but a lot of time lost, um, reputational damage as well. Can you put a financial cost on the fallout from this cyber attack? The, The thing is, though, it's very difficult for us to predict. So, for instance, a container with 
furniture that was supposed to have been delivered on Friday, maybe now it gets delivered on a Tuesday. If that had had to go into a warehouse, well, maybe that financial impact on that one is not that significant. But I could also have been a container with a spare part that prevented a factory from running from Monday morning. I've lost opportunity or lost sales on that as well. So so every of those 30,000 containers, they sort of represent a story of an importer and an exporter. And, and that ranges from yeah, your, your local mom and pop shop to, to large conglomerates. And, and, and every box sort of has its own story. So, so the impact is really wide uh, and, 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 and touches a, a lot of people. DP World's Australian Managing Director, Nicola News, speaking there with Peter Ryan. If you're a parent, you might find yourself constantly monitoring your kids' screen time, possibly worried it's affecting their mental health or even social and literacy skills. But phones, tablets and laptops can be extremely important for education, connection, even recreation. As Annie Guest reports, a study out today suggests there's no clear answer on how screen use is affecting young people. TikTok's short and upbeat user-generated videos make it among the top social media sites for young people. I was walking over to do the dishes and my mom started yelling at me, do the dishes, do the dishes! You've seen me going to do the dishes, right? The site often grabs the attention of these 15-year-olds who've just finished school for the day in North Brisbane. But they're downbeat about the effect on their education. Um, I'd say it's unhelpful because I'm always on it while I'm like trying to study and stuff. I always get lost into it. How long do you reckon you spend a day? Maybe more than five hours. <laughs> uh, just watching TikTok. What about you? Like six hours TikTok. But this 16-year-old boy who's waiting for a bus to get home has a different experience online. It's help- helpful. Instead of, like, looking through books, it's just quick and easy trying to find what you need to find. How much time do you reckon you spend online? Oh, maybe like four hours. Yeah, like social media and stuff, and if I need to know something, I'll just look it up. In an effort to work out how children are affected by screen use, researchers have examined almost 700 published studies involving 112,000 young people around the world. It was led by Dr Taryn Sanders from Australian Catholic University. And in terms of um, positives, we found that things like educational apps were good for general learning as well as for literacy and numeracy. And we found that um, children who watch television with their parents also tended to have slightly improved literacy skills than, um, than peers who didn't. And the study published today in the journal Nature Human Behaviour also lists the negatives. The impact of um, children's general screen use on their literacy skills was quite small. Television had a really small effect on children's um, weight or their body composition. Um, We found some evidence um, that social media uh, in particular was quite harmful, so we found it was linked to things like depression. These are averaged results, so for some kids, screen use can be more detrimental and for others, more beneficial. I think that there are certain types of screen use like social media, that parents should consider restricting. There are ways to have positive interactions with screens, saying to them that maybe they should switch from something that we know is harmful, such as um, you know general television use, to something that's more beneficial, such as educational television, for example. But he says overall the average pros and cons of screen use have much less impact on children than other big influences in their lives, such as their relationship with their parents.
Any guest reporting. That's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Sabra Lane. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. When the Commonwealth Bank was hauled before a Royal Commission back in 2018, it had already tried every trick in the book to try and discredit its critics. Today, the reporter behind the story, investigative journalist Adele Ferguson, on how the Commonwealth Bank was caught out and why there are mounting calls for whistleblower laws to be strengthened. Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listen app. Mm -hmm.